Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. The story starts in a garden. It was a garden that was teeming with life. Every plant and animal that you could imagine and far more all existing together in perfect harmony in the presence of God. And as the crown jewel of that perfection, God created humanity, male and female, and placed them in that perfect Garden, so that they might partner with God and with one another to join in with his rule and care over that perfect creation. And yet we know that things did not remain that way. God put Adam and Eve in this perfect garden. He told them to enjoy it, to partner with him in caring for it, and he gave them one command. He said, there's tree do not eat from it and yet they did and the result of that action was curse the the curses of sin and death brought upon them and by extension all creation Adam and Eve were sent out of that perfect garden because things were no longer as they were intended to be As God is describing the result of these curses, the reality of this broken world that Adam and Eve have brought upon themselves that they are now going to live within in Genesis chapter 3, he he describes how things will be now for the man and for the woman, for Adam and Eve. He describes how things will be for the serpent that deceived them into that disobedience. But you notice, if you keep reading Genesis chapter 3, that he describes the curse for creation itself as well. For Adam and Eve, life will be difficult, there will be pain, there will be hardships. But by extension from that, creation will no longer function as God intended for it to be. And that's the consequence of humanity's rejection of God's desire for us. The result is brokenness for us and for all things, everywhere, for all time, even down to today. And the result of that curse of sin is groaning. If you would join me, I would like to hear all of our best groan that we can muster this morning, whatever that means for you, on the count of three. One, two, three. That's very good. I was already planning on getting nothing because all the teenagers are gone today. So thank you for surpassing my expectations. I don't know what it is that makes you groan. Maybe as you get older, you notice more aches and pains when you're trying to get out of bed in the morning and that makes you groan. Maybe you groan because of sickness, either for you or for someone you care about. Maybe you groan because it's February and you live in Minnesota and winter lasts for far too long. Maybe it's when you look around at the state of our world. I I don't know what it is specifically that makes you groan, but I do know that we live in a world that leaves each and every one of us prone to groaning. 
And that might show itself in all sorts of ways. It might be groaning of anger, a frustration of angst, disgust, something else entirely, I don't know. But underneath it all, whether we recognize it or not, there is a disappointment that life is not as God intended it to be. We were not made to live in this broken world, and the fact that this place does not function as it was intended, the fact that you and I do not function as we were intended, it means that we groan. And no matter what the specific cause is that leads to our groaning at any given time, underneath it is always a deeper reality, and that is the brokenness that has characterized our world ever since Adam and Eve were forced to leave that garden at the beginning of the story in Genesis 3. We've all been groaning in our own unique ways ever since, and creation itself groans along with us. It is not just the aches and pains that we feel on any given day that are the groaning that are a result of the sin of Adam and Eve. It's things like natural disasters. It's things like viruses. It's things like social unrest that extend far beyond any one person. It's every little thing in our world that does not function as God designed it to be. It's all groaning. And faced with that reality, there wasn't much that you or I could ever do. We had broken things, and we were never going to be able to put it back together again. And yet the story does not end there. When we had made a mess of things, when we could do nothing to clean up that mess, Jesus came so that things might be restored back to what they were created to be. And that is the hope we believe in. That is the hope of the gospel. That is the goal of our life in Christ that we have been unpacking over the course of this series that we've called Salvation Spaces. All of the words, all of the images, all the passages of Scripture that we have been unpacking since the new year are not just uh, hypothetical things. They're not just something that's only available to a few people. They're not just something that's only available for far off in the future. They're words. They're calling us into a deeper life with Christ that begins right here and right now. And the end result of that life, the point to which all of this is headed, is all things restored to what God created them to be. The end result, the end goal, is glory. All things restored. And yet in the meantime, as we look forward to that day, we we groan. We groan because that life is not here yet. We groan because things are not as they should be. We groan... Because we long for glory. Yet as we groan, we do so with the knowledge that groaning is not the end of the story. We groan with the knowledge that the story ends with glory, being welcomed back into the garden, being back in the place that was created for us to dwell in a perfect relationship with one another and with God forever. And that future reality is making its way into our present. If we've said yes to following Jesus, and are stepping into the life he desires for us. And that's why it's worth reflecting on these passages of Scripture and what Paul is trying to communicate to us with the the words and the images that he uses that we've looked at over this series. And I hope you've picked up on that. It's been mentioned once or twice, but since this is the last week, I feel the need to emphasize it just in case you have missed it. Salvation, life with Christ, is so much more than getting a ticket stamp so that you get to go to heaven at the end of your life. It is that. 
but it is also life with God in the present. And I think that's worth reminding ourselves of always, but especially today as we think about the hope of restoration. Because the hope that we have because of the life Jesus has come to offer us is not just something for off in the future. It is that, but it is also hope in the present. It is confidence that groaning will not have the last word. And as we groan in the present, we do so with hope because we're looking forward to a garden where groaning will give way to glory. Paul directs us to that hope in Romans 8. I want to start reading for us at verse 18 this morning. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it, patiently. The message of the gospel does not shy away from the reality that there is pain and suffering in the world. Maybe you have thought at some point in the past or currently that if you say yes to following Jesus, that means all the problems in life go away. And it would be nice if that were the case, but if you continue to trace out that line of thinking, it breaks down when we encounter the realities of living in a broken world. And when that happens... When we encounter those difficulties in life, the line of thinking that life should just always get better and better would suggest that, well, maybe this bad thing is happening to me because I've done something to deserve it, or maybe the whole thing was a lie. It would be nice if following Jesus meant we never faced hardship, but that is not the life Jesus experienced, and it should not shock us if it is not our experience either. But the good news is that the message of Jesus is rich enough to give us answers to why life is hard. Questions in the midst of suffering are hard to wrestle through, that's absolutely true. But the message of Jesus is not scared of those questions because the questions are not the end of the story. And these verses we've just read are not everything that can be said about the matter, but Paul starts to give us an answer to those questions by acknowledging that, yes, life is at times very hard. Paul knew that personally. Life is hard, but it is nothing compared to the life to come God has in store for us. Because that is true, we are not broken by the hardships of life, because we have a broader perspective. And that is not said to minimize the hard things of life, but it calls us to encounter those hard things with an eye towards what is to come. When we do that, we join in with creation itself. Paul says that creation is longing for the day when God will restore all things. Creation is longing for the day when God will reveal his people by making them into everything he created them to be. And it does so with eager expectation. And that language Paul uses there is almost the imagery of having to crane your neck 
I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you were really straining to be able to see something. Maybe it was far away. Maybe you were at a weird angle, and so you couldn't get a good look at it, and so you kind of had to lean or, or really strain, get up on your tiptoes or something. I don't know what it, what it might have looked like for you, and I don't want to demonstrate too much. I'm afraid I'll fall down up here. But, but that's the imagery Paul uses in this verse. He says that creation itself is like a kid standing on a chair trying to see what's happening on the other side of the room because it's that eager to see God restore all things. Creation itself is on the edge of its seat anticipating God's restoration. And that should be our perspective too. We groan because if we are a follower of Jesus, we've been given a glimpse that things will not always be this way. And we can know that because, as Paul says here, we've been given the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits are a a taste, they're a down payment on what is to come. In the Old Testament, God's people are commanded to offer the first fruits of their harvest as an offering to God, as a thanksgiving that he has blessed them with the beginning of this harvest, and also as a statement of faith to say, we know that there's more to come where that came from. And so we are going to offer this to God because we know he will continue to bless us and provide for us. And Paul says that if we have said yes to following Jesus, if we have received the Holy Spirit in our lives, that presence of the Holy Spirit within us is the first fruits of what is to come. We have a sign that God is at work in us and in our world. We have a pledge that there is more on the way. We live in light of what we know the future holds. And that might seem vague and hypothetical, and if that's what you're thinking right now, let me make it as tangible as I can by talking about the most tangible thing I can think of, and that's food. If you, that was a joke, sorry. If you know what I'm talking about, if you've ever eaten a meal in light of what you know the dessert is going to be. Like like if you show up for a meal at someone's house and they say, hey, just so you know, I've got this pie, I've got this cake, I've got this whatever waiting in the kitchen for once we finish this meal, that changes how you eat that meal, or at least it does for me. You have these conversations with yourself of, that's good, but I don't know if it's as good as what's to come. I don't know if I should eat more of that because I'm still hungry, but I'm afraid if I eat more of this, it's going to interfere with what's to come later. That's living in light of what is to come. And that's what Paul is getting at in these verses. We groan because we live in a broken world. We groan because things are not as they should be. We groan because we wish things were different, but we groan with expectation because we have the first fruits of what is to come. Creation groans along with us as we long for things to be restored. So as we live in that meantime, we do so patiently because we have hope. We have hope that is grounded in the fact that Jesus is alive and will return one day to make all things new. And that hope sustains us no matter what groaning we might endure. And we can know that is the case because we have the presence of the Holy Spirit with us right here and right now. And because we know that not only is the Holy Spirit present with us, among us when we gather together, but the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf for God himself. Paul explains that more in the next couple of verses. He says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. 
because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. We are able to wait patiently, even when we groan, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. So when the message of Jesus talks about enduring suffering with faithfulness, with cheerfulness, with joy, whatever it might be, it's not advocating for something you're going to find in the self-help section of a bookstore. It's advocating for reliance on the presence of God's Spirit within us. If you're hearing what Paul's saying in these verses and you're thinking, that sounds nice to aspire to, but I just don't think I can do it, let me say that none of this is about you being strong enough to do it on your own. It's about relying on the one who is always present and will deliver you, not by your power, but by his. When you're faced with the reality of brokenness, when you are led to groaning the things, when you are led to a place of feeling speechless and searching for answers, when you feel completely disoriented, lost, and alone, you are in a position to experience the help and the provision of God, not because you've done something great, but because of the presence of God with you and because of the intercession of the Holy Spirit. Paul says here that the Holy Spirit does just that through wordless groans. And that might sound strange. If we were to sit down over a cup of coffee and you were to ask me exactly what, what that means, I'm not entirely sure I'd be able to give you a complete answer or one that would satisfy your question. But the more I read this passage, I feel less and less confident that this is a truth we're supposed to intellectually understand and more and more confident that this is a truth we're supposed to experience. So if we were to sit down, you were to ask me, okay, what are, what are these wordless groans? What does that mean? What does that look like? I would probably say I'm not entirely sure. But I know there have been moments in my life where I did not know what to pray for. I just knew that I needed to pray. And I needed to trust that as I did that, that God knew what was going on far better than I did. And that he would work things out for his glory. And in the meantime, I simply needed to sit in his presence. Uh, these verses are not saying that when life is hard, you need to learn some secret code of groaning with the Holy Spirit to be able to have a magic charm to get you out of whatever it is you're going through. These verses are saying that sometimes life is hard. And sometimes life is so hard that you don't even know what to pray about. But when those moments come, we have not been abandoned by God. In fact, in those moments, God is near and desires that we would draw near to him as well so that we could experience in part the restoration that he will one day bring to all things. So when we draw near to God in those moments, he is there. He's holding us up so that we might experience his restoration. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, based on these verses, that in those moments when life is hard, when we don't know what to pray for, we need the help of the Holy Spirit so that we can pray God's future into the present. That is what the Holy Spirit helps us do when life is hard. When we are faced with disease and decay, we pray God's future into the present to remind ourselves that God's future is to restore all things, and when he does that, there will be no more disease or decay. When we're faced with uncertainty, in our own hearts, in our world, in our bank accounts, anywhere else, we pray God's future into the present because God's future is a day where we dwell with him in perfection, face to face with all uncertainties done away with for all time. When life is hard, pray that God's future 
would invade the present so that you might experience the life God desires for you. And as you do that, you can be confident that God is on your side. The commentator Michael Gorman says about these verses that communication about the welfare of God's children is characteristic of the communion among the persons of the Trinity. And just in case you hear me say that or read it on the screen and think that sounds a little wordy, let me simplify it for you. His point is that the Holy Trinity that has ruled perfectly over all creation for all eternity has always existed in perfect relationship with one another. The all-powerful God of the universe is concerned about you. God cares about you and desires good for you. Maybe you've been encouraged by someone, you know, sending you a text, an email, a phone call or something and saying, hey, was just thinking about you today. I was talking with someone else about you and we just wanted you to know we love you. We're praying for you. We're thinking about you, whatever it might be. And you felt encouraged from that. Maybe something was going on that they didn't even know about that you felt in that moment that that God had sent them to you to to encourage you, to get you through whatever it was you were going through. If you have ever experienced that, that is a tiny glimpse into how deeply God cares about you. The all-powerful, all-knowing God of the universe desires good for you. And that good might not be exactly what you think it should be right now, But God is perfect in every way. He sees and knows more than we ever will. God cares about you personally and desires that you would grow into all that he desires for you to be as you experience his restoration in part now in anticipation of when it will come fully. And that leads to Paul's conclusion in these last few verses, 28 to 30. He says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. We can only make sense of those verses that I just read if we keep everything else from this passage in mind because Romans 8.28 can get pulled out of context and taken to mean what it was never meant to mean. Maybe you've been in a difficult situation, you've been in a hospital room, you've been in a receiving line at a funeral home, you've been standing at a graveside and someone has quoted Romans 8.28 to you and said, well, you know, God works all things together for good, so I don't know what's going on right now, but, you know, there, there must be some good that's going to come out of it eventually, And you weren't actually going to smack them in that moment because you're a nice person, but you sure wanted to. And if you've ever had that experience, if you've ever had that thought, I hope you can see that that is not Paul's point in this verse. If you've ever wondered if life is just some big cosmic game and God is pulling strings and he's making bad things happen over here so that good things can happen over there and you're just caught in the middle of it, hear me when I say that these verses are not an empty platitude. When we read these last three verses along with the rest of this passage, we see that Paul is making a bold statement about what is in store for us when we trust in the presence of the Spirit and the work of the gospel as we look forward to the restoration of all things. Paul's point here is not some empty, "Ah, you know, there's always a silver lining. There's always something waiting on the other side. His point is that there is nothing we experience in this life 
that God is not able to redeem. The point of these verses are not that God gave you cancer so that he could make a good thing happen somewhere down the road. The point is that we live in a broken world. And sometimes people get cancer because we live in a broken world. Yet God is working to one day restore all things. And in the meantime, he meets us in the brokenness of things like cancer so that we can know that one day he will bring restoration to all things. The point of this verse is not that God took away your job because he had some lesson he was trying to teach you. The point is that we live in a broken world and sometimes people lose their jobs. Yet God meets us in that brokenness so that we might know the hope and security he has come to bring that is deeper than any job will ever be able to provide. The point is not that God has given you anxiety or depression and you just need to have a little more faith and then he will take it away. The point is that we live in a broken world and that brokenness shows up in all sorts of ways. It shows itself in mind, body, soul, and spirit. And yet God is able to meet us in that brokenness to direct our hope forward to when he will restore all things. God's future is invading the present with the the assurance that if we have stepped into the life with God that he desires for us, we will one day be made whole as God has created us to be. And that is the point he is driving towards. It would be easy to get lost in the weeds of these verses, especially verses 29 and 30, because there's all sorts of theological terms. And those terms are helpful to get our minds around all that God has done and is doing for us and for our world. But for our purposes right now, it's important that we see the direction where all of that is headed. Paul's point here is not to walk us through a specific formula of future salvation, but to get us to see how God has been working to deliver each of us into his restoration that he will one day bring fully. If you have stepped into life with Christ, the progression Paul describes in these verses is the progression your life is traveling upon. And that might be a bumpy ride at times. There might be detours along the way. But the end result is to be delivered from our, glor- from our groaning into glory along this path God desires for us. If you've never said yes to following Jesus, this is the life God desires for you. It's not a life of saying no to things you would like to do now, but you know if you do them now, you won't get to go to heaven later, so you'll say no now to get something better further down the road. It's not a life of knowing that your Sunday mornings are going to be booked for the rest of your life, but other than that, you're free to basically do whatever you want as long as you don't commit any major crimes. It's a life lived in the presence of God A God that wants to deliver us out of groaning and into glory. God's desire is to restore us back into the life he created us for. A life lived in his presence. A life lived in a garden. And we can be confident that our story will end back in a garden where it began because there was another garden in the middle of the story. There was a man named Jesus who came to this earth. And he proclaimed a message that God's future was invading the present. He proclaimed a message that in him, in his teachings, in his miracles, in his actions, that God's kingdom was coming to earth as it was in heaven. And that message was met with some opposition. Because there were people who did not like what he had to say. His kingdom was butting up against the authority that they thought they had. And so they did not like that. And that opposition continued and continued to escalate until it reached a point where they had a scheme in place to have him put to death on a cross like a criminal. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, we're told that after Jesus dies, they're taking his body down off the cross. 
And the sun's about to go down, the Sabbath's about to start, so they don't have much time, and so they find this tomb that's never been used in a garden. They place Jesus in there, they roll the stone over the tomb, Roman soldiers are placed in front of it to guard it, and they leave. The Sabbath passes, Sunday morning comes. Some of Jesus' followers go back to the tomb to complete the preparations for burial that would have been customary in their culture, and when they get there, he's gone. Uh, The stone over the tomb's been rolled away. His body is not there, and they don't know what to do with this. Some of them leave to go tell others, and there's one woman, Mary Magdalene, standing there at the tomb, and she is weeping because she doesn't know what to do. She had bet everything on this Jesus, that he was who he claimed to be, that he was bringing God's kingdom into this world, that God's future was invading the present through him, and now he's dead, and not only is he dead, we don't even know where the body is now. And she weeps. And as she's weeping, someone comes up behind her and asks her why she's crying. And John tells us in John chapter 20 that she thinks this must be the gardener. She begins to explain to him that my, my, they've taken the body of my Lord. I don't know where they've, where they've put him. You know, if you've moved him, just let me know. I'll go take care of it, but I got to know where this body is. And instead of an explanation, this gardener simply says her name, Mary. And in that moment, Mary realizes that this is not a gardener she's talking to. It is the resurrected son of God who has walked out of that tomb, and the fact that he has walked out of that tomb means that death is defeated forever. He's not a gardener. He's the one who has come so that we might be made new. He's the one who has come to open up the way for us to be restored, for us to go back into that garden to dwell with God and with one another forever. And that is the foundation of our hope. That our God who is faithful has been at work throughout all time to restore all things. And because that is how God has always worked, we can know that he will complete the task. And for that reason, next week we're going to be entering into the series that's going to take us up to Easter. And we're calling that series Liberated. Because these themes of God bringing redemption from sin and death and bringing his people into life with him, which he does in the gospel, which we've been unpacking ever since the new year, we see those themes happen across the entire story of scripture and they culminate with God's restoration of all things. And so we'll be starting a new series, but the emphasis will be the same, to see how God works in the world and to see how we can participate in it. So no matter who you are, My ask of you this morning is to step into God's restoration. Step into the restoration that he wants to do in your life and that will one day include all things. Don't put it off another hour, another day, another week. Take the next step in the life Jesus desires for you today. Step into that life now and begin to experience groaning, giving way to glory as we look forward to that garden of restoration. Let's watch this video. Imagine you stand on the edge of a cliff. 
you take notice of the great expanse before you, the great mountains which tower toward the sky, so high that no vegetation can grow. They are simply capped by stone and dirt. They stretch into the valley where organisms are born and change. You see the trees and grass, the flowers and thorns. They provide for the creatures who live there, the ox and the bird, the wolf and the worm. Yet nothing compares to the grand finale, humanity. The great intricacies of a person who knows and wills and loves. Every molecule working together like an instrument in a symphony, each birth amplifying the melody and declaring the glory of the composer. All of this creation was not born of its own will, but by a grand maker, brought forth into existence by a creator who wanted it there. Spoiled only by its own broken love, humanity loved the made instead of the maker, the created instead of the creator. Humanity and creation itself became subject to frustration and in bondage to decay. The great garden which once teemed with life became wild. What was once a haven of peace became a dangerous jungle. But creator would enter creation. He who sustains life would now interrupt it. The same word which composed this song would now become part of it, moving the dynamic to an ever-growing crescendo. He would trim back the vines, rip away the weeds, burn the chaff. Here, he would restore that garden. He would make his sacred space. He would invite us home. This is restoration. you pray with me? God, we thank you for this grand story of the gospel. The story of how you call us out of sin and death, out of darkness and into light and life with you. We thank you for all that you've done in sending your son to die and raise from the dead for us so that we might be able to step into that life, this life that begins now and culminates in restoration. God, we trust that you are here, that you're meeting us where we are right now, each and every one of us, in your perfection. You know us intimately. You know who we are, where we are, what we need. And so we ask that you would be with us, as we sort out what it means to respond, what it means to step into restoration, what it means to be a part of your future invading our present. And meet us where we are. Give us faith to trust in what you're saying. Help us step into the life you desire for us. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.